You are listening to the Life Point Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Drew Meyer. For more information about other Life Point Church resources, please visit www.livethemessage.org. So glad you're here with us this morning. So Matthew chapter two, uh, Matthew chapter one. I have a message on my heart. It's not a typical Christian. I mean, Christmas message. The title of my message this morning is "Don't Be Offended." Don't be offended. It's like this Christmas season. You know, Christmas has come and go. They're on the calendar. You know they're coming every single year. But this Christmas season, it's like the Christmas story has been just jumping off the page to me in a fresh way. And from here, from the, the account of uh, the birth of, of Christ, from, from Joseph's perspective, there's just a, a unique perspective that I felt like the Lord spoke to my heart in preparation for this Christmas season. So I want to unpack that with you all this morning. Matthew chapter 1. So now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quickly. Or sorry, divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. If you were with us a couple weeks ago, we we looked at the the story of the the birth of Christ from Mary's perspective and this radical favor that was bestowed upon her, that it was completely unmerited. It was was not because of anything she had done. It was grace. It was a picture of the grace that you and I have access to now through Jesus. So now we see it from Joseph's perspective, and he hears... I'm assuming it came from Mary. She told him she's pregnant from the Holy Spirit. And he did not know what to do with that information. He did not know, he didn't have a grid to conceive or understand what that meant. So he was a righteous man. He was, he wanted to do what was right. He didn't want to bring shame to her. Doesn't say there was any sort of self-preservation that was his motive, but I'm sure he's human like any of us. There was was an aspect of that as well. So he thought he would divorce her quietly. Let's just let this kind of take its course. Let's see what happens until he has an encounter with an angel. And that convinced him, okay, this is really of the Lord. I'm willing to kind of count the cost. I'm willing to to do, to, to see this through and stay faithful to her. I believe there's a crossroads. Every single person that's confronted with Jesus as Messiah, there's a crossroads that we all have to come to. Where we, where we count the cost, where we check, we check our pride, and we allow the offense of the gospel to actually penetrate our hearts. Where we, finally, we finally come to an end of ourself. And Joseph, for himself, in, in a couple of different uh, dimensions or different ways, he had to wrestle through the offense of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This, this king Messiah, who now is coming as an infant, king of the universe, all-powerful God, sovereign over all things. Now he's a baby. He didn't have a compartment for that. He was a devout uh, Jewish man. 
he, he anticipated, I'm sure, the Messiah in a certain way. But now for him to think of now the king of the universe as a baby child, he did not have a compartment. It was, it, it's, an, it's an offense almost to him. And then on top of that, to think through how this would be perceived that now his wife is pregnant out of wedlock. There was a death to his own pride that needed to take place. And that's actually, that's actually a crossroads every single person has to wrestle through. It's finally a death to ourself. Where you come face to face with the Messiah. And this otherworldly message of the radical grace of Jesus Christ, the radical grace of God to bridge the divide, for him to take on your weakness, for him to come in the form of a helpless baby on your behalf. We, we resist that message, actually. It's, it's offensive to our pride, especially us as Western believers, West, Westerners in general. We're hardworking, independent people. We can do anything if we put our minds to. That's what we tell ourselves. We, we are so self, self-sufficient and self-reliant. That's actually opposite of the gospel. The gospel is an end to ourself, where he comes as our sufficiency. And yes, you can be saved by a baby. You can be saved by a helpless baby, this perfect one. So this is our main idea for this morning, is from his birth to his death, King Jesus is an offense to our pride. From his birth to his death, and we're going to talk about a number of different ways throughout Jesus' life, how he was an offense to our pride. Because I'm praying this Christmas season, in a fresh way, you'll just be drawn into gratitude and awe and wonder of our Messiah, of, our, of the Son of God who is revealed to the person of Jesus. A kind of a key text to this series, Come and See, is 1 Peter chapter 1. It gives us a picture of the anticipation of history in heaven. The prophets for centuries anticipated his arrival. The angels, it says in 1 Peter 1, they long to look on this redemptive story that you and I, we, we have the privilege of looking upon it. We, we, we live in such a blessed day. We can look and see the redemptive story from this side of history. We can look back and see the Messiah revealed for you, for you personally. That's that invitation to come and see. But as you come and you recognize the claims that Jesus makes, the, the miracles that surrounded it, it calls a response out of us. And what is our response going to be? And I believe one crossroads we have to come, come to in that response is a check to our pride. So when I use that word that Jesus is an offense to our pride, I want to clarify that a little bit. Because what I, I'm not saying that, that Jesus wants to offend you. Nor am I saying as Christ followers that we in any way want to offend the world outright. It's not our aim to offend people, nor is it Jesus' aim to offend you. What I'm saying is inherent in the message that he brought of radical good news, of radical love, of a, of a message from another world, of another kingdom, it is inherently uh, offensive to us. Because we, we have sin in us, because we we, um, we are rooted, our, the, the deepest roots of our sin, our pride, our self-reliance. It's hard for us to grapple with the radical implications of the good news of Jesus Christ. So that's what I mean by it's an offense to our pride. In this world that's already greatly divided, I want to tell you, we do, I do believe we have a, a mandate on us to actually remove as many offenses as possible and remove as many stumbling blocks to a lost and broken world. 
We want to do whatever it takes to, to truly be the fragrance of the love of God and ambassadors and represent Jesus well. But in that, there's this tension. We want to remove all stumbling blocks, all offenses, but inherent in the message that we proclaim of Jesus Christ as people's soul sufficiency, there's an offense to that, that we, we can't remove that aspect of the offense of the gospel. We can't. So we, we go the extra mile. We, we bend over backwards for people. We give sacrificially of our time, money, and, and resources that they may be reached, but at the end of the day, they have to come to that crossroads where they check their pride, where they surrender all that they are. And we cannot remove that aspect of the gospel. That's how Jesus, King Jesus, is an offense to our pride. So, number one, I want to talk about the offense of his birth. There's an offensive aspect to, to the birth of Jesus Christ. The fact that the king of the universe would come in the form of a baby. The fact that he would be born to a virgin. There's, there's an aspect of the, the birth of, of King Jesus that Joseph and Mary would be misunderstood. People would kind of scratch their heads. People would question their character. And as a Christ follower, as you make decisions to follow after Messiah, King Jesus, there will be aspects of it that people will never understand. Some people will think you're crazy. Some people will think you jumped off the deep end. And that's just an aspect of us following this King Jesus who's from another world. That each person individually has to have that encounter for themselves. Otherwise, they're not going to understand the commitments that you're making, the steps that you're making. So that, that was part of it for Joseph and Mary. Over the next nine months, as she carried King Jesus, she, she carried the Messiah in her womb. There was an aspect of them dying to themselves they continually just had to bring themselves to. I don't care what people think. I know we're a part of this story. We're, we're a part of bringing the Messiah to, to, the, to the earth. So they had to die to themselves. But even the aspect of, of king, king of the universe bringing himself in the, in the form of a helpless baby, even that aspect is offensive to us. Just last night I went on a walk with my son we took our dog for a walk through the neighborhood, and we were looking up at the, up at the sky, and we saw Mars there and other stars, and we started talking about the vastness of just the Milky Way galaxy, the billions of stars, and then if you think beyond that, the, the billions of galaxies in our universe, it's so humbling to think of, of the, the magnitude and the power and the majesty of God in light of all that. And so if you think of the, the God of all the universe, this universe, this universe that's still expanding, that God then coming in the form of a helpless baby. And it's that helpless baby that becomes your savior. Is that not offensive to a person who's educated and, and well-respected and you, you have a pretty awesome resume and, and you, you have a you have a great net worth, and, and you can feel pretty good about yourself, but when you think of it in those terms, it's, it's offensive. King Jesus, king of the universe, is a helpless baby and your savior. You are being saved by a helpless babe. It's the offense of his birth. And as, as Mary carried the Messiah, these, these magi from the east they're perceptive, they're humble enough to recognize this sign, this star. And they're drawn to the Messiah. You know the story in Matthew chapter 2, we'll talk about it in a couple of weeks. And they come to King Herod. 
King Herod hears about the idea that there's a new king in town. There's, a new, there's only room for one king in this kingdom, and that's King Herod. See, King Herod had no room for another king in his life. And I would say another offense within his birth is the fact that he is King Jesus. And King Herod was so immersed in his own pride that he went on a rampage, killing an entire generation. And so another offense within his birth that we all have to come to is surrendering our lives to King Jesus. In the kingdom of King Jesus, there's only one king. He doesn't share his throne with anybody. You can't, be, you can't be king and then also say, I'm a follower of Christ. You can't be the ruler of your own destiny. You can't call the shots. There is a, and that is an offense to our pride. There's a point where you have to die to yourself and say, you are King Jesus. And it's not so much that it's one and done. I've found in my own journey with Christ that there are continual moments where I have to come before him and bow before him. As I begin to rely on myself, as I begin to maybe call my own shots, as I begin to almost take the reins back into my own hands, I have to get on my knees and just declare him king in a fresh way. I would say that most of you probably aren't like King Herod. You're just a, a, ra- a you know, raving lunatic, lunatic uh, incest with pride. But there's an aspect of King Herod that's in us where we like to call our own shots. We like to be the rulers of our own domain. We like to be the kings of our kingdom. And so inherent in the in the, the Christmas story is, the, is you surrendering your kingdom. You surrendering your life before our King Jesus. So it's the offense of his birth. Second is this, it's the offense of his miracles. And this is a big one. Because this really, this really surrounded most of Jesus' ministry. It's what really got him crucified, was the offense of his miracles. And it's so fascinating that it wasn't the non-religious that were hung up by his miracles. It was actually the religious that were hung up by his miracles. It's when God did things that were outside of their calculated boxes. They struggled with that because that's pride. When we feel like we've figured God out, we've reduced God down to our, our four cardinal truths and anything outside of that, it, it seems like is an offense to our pride. So just a few examples. Luke chapter 6 Verses 6 through 11, there's this account of Jesus healing a man with a withered hand. And this is, of course, on the Sabbath day. So the religious leaders, instead of having any sort of compassion to this man who is disabled, whether he was in pain or not, we're not sure, but he has a withered hand. Instead of having any sort of thought to this man's disability, all they were, they were obsessed with is whether or not God or Jesus was going to heal on the Sabbath. This day that they had set aside... As a day to rest and find their sufficiency in God, the complete spirit of the law was removed. They were obsessed with the letter of the law, so much at the detriment of somebody else. So, of course, Jesus heals him. And Jesus says to him, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there, and Jesus said to him, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do harm, to save a life or destroy it? And after looking around... At them all, he said to them, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. And this was the response of the religious leaders. You'd think that would convince, I mean, he was using this man as an example to penetrate their hearts, just uh, filled with pride. You'd think that would convince them. But, th- but this is what verse 11 says, but they were filled with fury 
and they discussed with one, or, one another what they might do to Jesus. It's the offense of his miracles. The power of God, the raw authority of King Jesus to do as he wills. This one of infinite ability to supersede your very finite ability for God to move on your behalf. The religious leaders, they had it all figured out. They didn't want anything to go beyond their jurisdiction, beyond their authority. Luke chapter 13, there's a similar account. Again, a miracle on the Sabbath, which was just a huge point of contention or offense for the religious leaders was, was Jesus healing on the Sabbath. There's a woman who was disabled for 18 years. Can you imagine? She was disabled for 18 years. She was bent over and she could not fully straighten herself. Jesus saw her and he called and said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hand on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. 18 years and she's healed. The response of the religious leaders is very similar to Luke chapter six. Again, they're just, they're infuriated. And they actually call him out. They actually say something. They say, there's six days in which this work, this type of work ought to be done. That's their response. There's six other days. Come on, do it on another day other than Saturday. It's the offense of Jesus' miracles. His raw power to move. That we and ourselves, we have a limited ability. And, and God himself has an infinite ability. I, I believe as a, as a church... God's bringing us into a season of contending more and more for the miraculous. I'm just coming to an end of myself. That I realize there's only so much we can accomplish as a, as a really nifty organization in our city, in and of our own just human prowess. But if we come to an end of ourselves and admit our very limited ability, it makes room for God, it gives us greater capacity for God to move, for God to change families, for God to free people of addictions. For God to heal broken bodies. Just last week I heard a testimony of someone in our church being healed of glaucoma. Praise God. And she went to the doctor and she got it confirmed from the doctor. She had faith that she was that she, she had faith to believe that she was healed and she wanted to be confirmed. She went to the doctor. Praise God. God healed her of glaucoma. That's just the beginning. When we make room, when we testify about the power of God, that's the God that we serve. King Jesus, who walked the earth, so much of his ministry was um, immersed in the miraculous. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be that still in the 21st century, the body of Christ, that's, that's the, the title that the New Testament gives us, that is the body of Christ, we also would be immersed in the miraculous? Wouldn't that also follow us? Mark chapter 16, these signs shall also follow those that believe. Doesn't that make sense? But yet in our Western way, as the, rest of the, as the rest of the church worldwide is exploding in growth because of the miraculous, the Western world, we're still explaining it away. We're trying to come up with this rationale for why the miraculous does not happen today. When the rest of the world, the church is just exploding with growth. There's one, one actually testimony I came across. Um, there's one testimony I came across this week. This was from a, uh, this is in Panama, in a very remote region in Panama. This Bible translator, him and a few colleagues, they, they went to this really tribal region in Panama to, to, to work amongst these people and translate the Bible into their language. They're called the Choco people. And it was there that they were staying with a local host, and the local host uh, came down with what they assumed was pneumonia. 
So it's so fascinating. Here's this, this biblical scholar, this biblical translator, obviously very well educated, and had a genuine faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and as Lord. So I'm not questioning his salvation, nor am I questioning your salvation if you struggle to believe God for the miraculous. Trust me, we're all a result of, of the Western way of thinking. But he had this epiphany moment. As he himself had translated James chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, that that prayer of faith will, will, will heal a sick person. They'll rise up. That's the promise in James chapter 5. He had translated that himself into their language. And yet he had this realization right now that he did not have the faith to pray. Nevertheless, I'll just read it here. Reading this passage, the local believers prayed with him for her healing, and she rallied slightly. By the next morning, however, she was dying again. So the local believers anointed her with oil, this time without inviting this man. His name was Jacob, without inviting Jacob. And this time she rose from her bed completely well, returning immediately to her household labors. So then the, the host, they, she declared happily that God's spirit had chased away the fever spirits. And Jacob noted, hey, you had not invited me and my colleague. Why didn't you invite us to pray with you? She apologized, but she noted, it doesn't work when you and David are in the circle. You and David don't really believe. And so then the writer, this uh, scholar, he, just, he recognized this kind of epiphany moment of the limitations of his own faith because of where he came from. We're so blessed in the West with our education and our high regard for, for academics and even for science. I have an appreciation for science, but we have to realize that that has a place and has a limit. And there's a God that supersedes that and can do much more than what we can measure and what we can calculate and what we can predict. There's a God that supersedes that. He's the God that set all natural laws into motion. He's the, the author of all that. He's the law giver of the universe. So of course he can supersede it at any moment. And we have all these precious promises that in the West we oftentimes explain away because of the offense of Jesus' miracles. So as a church, we're a church that believes in the miraculous. One, because I feel like it's the most consistent conviction to have as we read Scripture. That's, the, that's really the first reason. If we just want to be true to Scripture, we have to contend for the miraculous. But secondly... When we contend for the miraculous, we're, we're making this humble expression or humble admission that we have a limited ability and God has an infinite ability. And that's just a healthy place for us to be as followers of Jesus. I'll move on from there since you're all uncomfortable. So the third is this, the offense of his cross. The offense of his birth, the offense of his miracles, and thirdly is the offense of his cross. This was something that was hard for the disciples to grapple with. King Jesus being put to death on a cross. And when Jesus predicted it, they resisted it. They said, no, you're not going to die on a cross. You are a victorious ruler, a victorious leader, a victorious king. You're not going to die on a cross. They rebuked Jesus. Obviously, he rebuked him back. John chapter 6, Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll have no life in you. And that was a statement that it says actually in verse 66 in John chapter 6, that many disciples turned back. After Jesus said that, that was too much for them to handle. We have to what? We have to do what? We have to regard your death as life, as sustenance for us? They didn't have a grid for that. 
And so those weren't unbelievers. Those, it says, uh, the Gospel of John says those were disciples that turned back. Those were ones who had said they were followers of Jesus. Now they, they didn't have a grid for that sort of um, dependency on this Savior, on this Messiah. That his death would become like life to us. So they turned back. That's the offense of the cross. The gruesomeness of the cross, the violence of our own sin, and our own depravity, of our own brokenness. For us to see that depicted before us in a perfect Savior. The injustice of the cross. Our pride does not have a, a compartment for that. And so then in Luke chapter 9, Jesus, Jesus calls us to the crossroads that I'm talking about this morning. He says, if anyone would come after me, he must pick up his cross daily, deny himself, and come follow me. That's the call that each one of us have to bring ourselves to as individuals, as followers of Jesus. If you want to follow him, you have to take up your cross daily. Deny yourself. Come follow him. It's the offense of the cross. I'm going to have the worship team come forward this morning. They're going to play that song, Surrounded. But I felt like it was fitting this, this Christmas season. I know not typical. This message wasn't a typical Christmas message but it had been stirring in my heart. I feel like Christmas is a good season for us to stir up awe, wonder, and gratitude. And anytime you can bow before King Jesus, whether you think of him as baby King Jesus or King Jesus hung on a cross, it's so good as, as followers of Jesus to have those moments to again crucify our pride, to again crucify our flesh and say, you are sufficient Savior. I just crucify all self-reliance. And so one last thing I want to draw you to is really a phrase that, that uh, the, the, the John the Baptist, really the one who prepared the way for Jesus, the one, one thing that he declared towards the end of his life and towards the end of his public ministry. I think it, it's fitting Christmas season as this is Advent. Advent's about preparing for the Messiah making space for the Messiah, this John the Baptist, cousin of Jesus, what he said is, I must decrease and he must increase. How fitting is that for Christmas? In the midst of this season where we recognize King Jesus, that we would, we would say, okay, I must decrease now. Towards the end of this year, towards all that you've done in my life, all that maybe I've accumulated over this year, I must decrease. God, you must increase. As we prepare for 2019, as a church, as individuals, as a family, Christmas is a perfect season to do that. So everyone would stand in this place. I want us to respond to God this morning. We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. For more information about LifePoint Church, please visit www.livethemessage.org.